Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us tonight the current coach of both Nicole Gibbs and Stevie Johnson. This guest played his college tennis at Boston College. He is coached at the collegiate level at Princeton University. He was also a USTA developmental coach for several years. Not only does he share the same spelling of my dad's first name, M-A-R-C, but also shares the same birthday as my daughter of December 30th, and his brother's name is David, as is my name. I feel like we're practically family. Please welcome to the pod, Mark Lucero. Mark, thanks for uh, doing this, man. David, my pleasure. I, uh, I feel like we're used to running to each other at a family reunion maybe this summer. Jeez. My God, for sure. So so odd, and when we were, we were going through it, we're like, no way. So yeah, family reunion for sure. I expect to see you there, man. Um, yeah. Crazy right now. Um, like I said, you're, you're the current coach for Nicole Gibbs and, and Stevie Johnson. Obviously, with, with the situation of COVID-19, things have come to a halt. What, what have you been doing uh, keeping yourself busy? Yeah, I think I've been, you know, kind of the same as everybody, trying to find a routine each day, uh, you know, trying to be really diligent with my workouts at home, you know, doing a lot of cooking, uh, spending some time, you know, on social media, and, uh, you know, trying to dive into some stats, you know, having to do with the players that I coach, yep. and, you know, and that's really, that's kind of, a, that's about it, it's been a, sort of a, you know, no one... Obviously, no one would choose to have time like this, but it's been, you know, a, a sort of a little opportunity to, I guess, slow down and take a step back and, and do some introspection and do some sort of reevaluating. I think for a lot of people, so in that sense, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, beneficial and it's been a nice, uh, nice way to sort of restart. For sure, and that. yeah, for sure, and the listeners go check out Mark on. Uh, on Twitter and everything, on other social media handles, he does these great like one two minute tips. They're they're they're, they're good, and he makes them funny and they're entertaining. So, uh, thanks for sharing all that. Before we yeah, kind of thanks. yeah, before we get kind of more current with with everything going on, I want to kind of take a step back and talk about your background and where you grew up. I know you're in California now. Where you grew up, and you know how you how you got started playing tennis. Yeah, I grew up in San Diego, California. I played, you know, the first sport I was really exposed to was soccer at a young age. I started playing soccer when I was around six years old. Uh, around nine years old, you know, I had a couple good friends from, from school, and for whatever reason, someone in the group had the idea to take tennis lessons. And so there were four of us, excuse me, there were five of us who took a group lesson together once a week. My little brother, uh, a set of twins, and then one more guy. So, yeah, there were five of us. And... You know, at the end of the summer, we were taking these lessons once a week. They were pretty fun, but I didn't really think much of it. And then later that summer, this is the summer of 1989, uh, I saw a match on television. It was this really skinny kid with long hair and jean shorts. And I thought, <laughs> man, that guy is so freaking cool. And I want to I do that. And it was a young Andre Agassi. And that's kind of uh, how I got a little more motivated to put a little more effort into the tennis. And um, yeah, the rest is history. Uh, awesome. So you played at Boston College from 1998 to 2002. Um, obviously, you play at that level. You had some good junior highlights. Talk a little bit about your junior career. Yeah, I was a pretty, you know, I was, I, was a, I was a decent junior. I was an okay junior. Uh, by no means was I, you know, setting the world on fire. I played soccer through my freshman year of high school. Uh, at that point, I, you know, I was focusing more on the tennis after that. Uh, 
I was, you know, I was one of the best players in San Diego. I was a good, you know, Southern California sectional level player, and, and um, you know, I would play some of the national scheduled tournaments and get a chance to play some good players from around the country. And you know, you kind of see the depth of certain parts of the country. So, being a guy from Southern Cal who was pretty good, at, you know, I would get a chance to play some maybe some top players from some other sections that weren't quite so strong and put up some results here and there. But uh, I was probably what you'd call a late bloomer. I was probably a better athlete than a better tennis player at a young age. And then getting into college, um, you know, I was able to focus more and, um, you know, probably enjoy, you know, enjoy the fruits, I guess, of uh, a multi-sport background. For sure. Now you go from Southern California all the way to the Northeast and uh, up in Boston College. Totally different climate. What made you want to do that trek and and leave the beautiful weather you're currently at? Yeah, for, for whatever reason, I wanted to explore that part of the country. You know, in Southern California, we kind of romanticized going to college. You know, back east, air quotes. And uh, I did a uh, I did a college tour with my dad one summer. Um, my summer after my junior year, we looked at a bunch of schools in the Northeast. Uh, just so I would have sort of a basis on which to compare. And when I visited BC, I really loved it. I actually had a teammate there a year older than me from San Diego who I had known, you know, since we were 10, 11 years old. And he uh, had some, you know, had some great things to say. Um, my senior year, they were out in California. I saw them play there. And I talked to the coach. Uh, and, yeah, I, um, I ended up deciding to go there because, you know, worst case scenario, I could always come back. And, um, you know, I had looked at a couple schools in the L.A. area, possibly walking on there. But uh, I decided to, you know, take the leap and try it out, and I uh, loved it. I loved my time in Boston. And you had a heck of a career. I think you, you led, you've you led the Eagles in career wins, right? That record still holds? It no longer stands, unfortunately. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> I put a lot of points on the board for the Eagles, and uh, we, you know, I had a great time uh, competing there. And, you know, I have, you know, again, I have some great memories from my time there. Sure. And then you got into, and I don't know if you got into it right away after graduation, but you've done some really, really cool things in the coaching arena. How did that transition come about? Was it something that you, you thought you wanted to do? Did you naturally fall into it? Why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, it's funny. So um, after college, I played for about a year. Uh, I didn't really do it. You know, I didn't, didn't do anything, period. Um, and I went to law school. And I was in my first year of law school, and I just freaking hated it. I hated what I was doing. I studied econ in my undergrad uh, at BC, and so I like, you know, like numbers. And I like theorems. I like reasons. You know, I like charts and graphs and things that explain why things are happening and understanding that you know supply is related to demand, and as demand increases. Uh, you know, um, the supply will decrease, and you know, as a result, the price will change accordingly. Blah blah. So, anyway, you know, in, in law school, I found myself reading, you know, uh, Supreme Court Justice Marshall's opinion and trying to make it fit to whatever argument I wanted to put forward. And it was so gray that I just, you know, I just didn't like it. And part of me knew I wanted to do something else. I just didn't know what that was. So after my first year. I, you know, I withdrew from school and tennis was the easiest thing for me to do in the short term to figure out what I really wanted to do. And so, you know, I, I thought I could coach tennis in the, in the meanwhile and then decide what I wanted to do. And, 
in order to give myself a little bit of a cushion, to, you know, a time cushion to sort of hold my dad off because he was pressuring me about what I was really going to do, uh, I applied for a job at Princeton University because I thought college coaching would be a good thing to tell him that, listen, I have something in the works, but, like, I wasn't ready to commit to it by any means, especially Princeton because he wanted me to go there and I didn't really want to, you know, whatever. Right. I, mean, I was a, a student. So, anyway, so I applied for a job at Princeton just literally just to go through the, uh, just to go through the, the, the process of interviewing. And I ended up going through the process. I had some good conversations with the head coach. And out of the blue, I just took the job. And uh, I found in my time in Princeton, my three years there, that I really loved what I was doing. Um, and it made me want to kind of dive further into coaching. And then so you got... Yeah, and then you got connected up with the USTA, right? Yeah, so there was about a year. That was in 2007. I left Princeton after, like, this was the summer of 2007. I went back to California. I thought, you know, I wanted to try to work on the individual level. Uh, I wanted to work privately and work in a one-on-one setting because I was like, okay, like, college tennis is it's nice and it's, it's fun, but I would like to spend more time with one player. So I started working with um, a pro player who was, you know, she was ranked around 500 in the world. But it just gave me the experience sort of traveling on the tour. And after about a year of that, uh, I got, yeah, I got connected with the USTA and I started working with the USTA and Carson. And you were working with juniors and were you working with also young professionals at the time too? Whoever. Yeah. Whoever, right. Yeah, so I was, yeah, so during the day, I would help the coaches with the pro players that were based there at the time was, you know, it was guys like Sam Query and Marty Fish was there, like starting his comeback after knee surgery, and uh, there were a bunch of pro, you know other pro players that would sort of cycle through town. So I would help uh, the coaches, you know, I would help their primary coaches, um, like David Mankin, people like that. I would help them with those players during the day, and then in the afternoon, the young kids would come out. We had kids from eight years old, you know, after school program, probably eight to like fourteen or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got yeah I got to work with players of all different ages and, and over time that program those two programs sort of morphed and a lot of those younger kids uh, you know when they were 12, 13, 14 transitioned to the full time program and um, I ended up getting my you know my own full time players over time and uh, yeah you know it was great coaching uh, all sorts of good players but to be honest the best part was working with the coaches I got to work with and talking tennis with those coaches and learning from those coaches uh, you know I got to work with people like. Ray Russell and David Dinkin, Lori McNeil, Tom Gullick, and David Rodidi, like so many great coaches, Roger Smith. It was like, uh, you know, it was like going to uh, a grad school, like one of the best schools in the country for whatever program you want to do, but for kind of... For sure. For sure. It's like you're a sponge just soaking up all their knowledge. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. For a a tennis nerd like me, it was like heaven, you know? Yeah, and it's great. I mean, you've had a lot of experience coaching juniors. You... close contact, you've coached in the collegiate level, and now you're dealing with the pros. So right now you're with uh, Nicole Gibbs and Stevie Johnson. What what have they been doing during this time? They've both uh, been lacing up the running shoes like crazy. They're both doing, like, they're both doing a lot of running, uh, you know, lace, yoga. Uh, Stevie's got a peloton, so he's on the bike a lot to sort of you know, take some of the pressure off the joints and stuff. But, um, you know, same as everybody. Like, they're on the same boat. They're not sure, you know, we're not sure when tennis is going to come back. And they're trying to, you know, stay busy and, uh, um, again, find the same routines that everyone else is sort of seeking. And, 
yeah, just trying to like work out and keep the mind right, eat healthy, all that sort of stuff. And, and I think for them, um, you know, being able to be home, be in one place for a long period of time, uh, at the end of the day, is kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, a, you know these tennis players, and, and along with their coaches, their traveling coaches, they've never been uh, in one place this long uh, since they started this journey. So it is yeah, definitely it's different. Time with their loved ones. I mean, Nicole got married less than a year ago. Stevie's, I think, maybe two years married. So right. um, yeah, so it's a nice thing at the end of the day. Yeah, let me. You know, every week that goes by, unfortunately, we're hearing events um, getting canceled, and the U.S. Open, as of this recording, has still not announced that they're going to postpone it or delay it. Let me ask you, I'll ask you two questions. One, do you think tennis will be played, professional tennis events will be played prior to the end of the year? And two, um, are you hearing anything substantively that the U.S. Open may possibly be moving to Indian Wells and playing that in, in November, you know, December, late in the year? Yeah, I think with the first part of your question, I think potentially there are scenarios where professional tennis could take place. However, the caveat is I think it would have to be kind of reimagined in a different way. Uh, right now, there are a number of hurdles that sort of prevent the type of tournament tennis that we're used to. There's hurdles that prevent that from happening, and, and namely, the, the biggest hurdle in my mind, actually, there's two of them. Uh, the Air restrictions, the restrictions on air travel worldwide, like meaning right, right now, uh, you know, the administration has travel restrictions in place, uh, large segments of Europe and Asia, obviously. Um, so you can't you can't have a tournament if you know, players can't travel here. You can't have a, a normal tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, if you're going to have a tournament, even without fans, I think you need to have a way to do ample testing. So you need to have the capacity to test the players. You know, potentially almost daily, but basically as much as you need to do. But you need to have that capacity to test without impacting the ability of health professionals to test, you know, the people that they need to test. And for medical professionals themselves to be tested, all that sort of thing. So I don't think we're there yet on either one of those. I can see I can see World Team Tennis happening um, because they can operate almost like, you know, like, like the NBA where they can play in, you know, one location or with, with fewer people. Um, I can see I can see regional tennis happening towards the end of the year, uh, where maybe you have some tournaments in the United States in, in some areas where uh, where the virus has been less prevalent, like maybe Big Sky Country or maybe some parts of the South. Uh, you know, where you have only American players. I can see some tournaments taking place in Europe where there's only really European players. But as far as tournament tennis that we're used to seeing, uh, I am not optimistic on that. Um, related to the U.S. Open. I was optimistic uh, a couple weeks ago. However, when I heard the when I, when I read the transcript from the new CEO Michael Dow's uh, of the USDA, when I read his press conference transcript the other day, I was much less optimistic. They did not he did not seem as willing to play without fans um, as I had sort of anticipated. I you know again I don't see any scenario this year. I don't see any scenario pre vaccine where they have you know. A normal sort of event, air quotes normal, uh, until there's like until there's a vaccine. So um, I would love to have the tournament in Indian Wells in the fall, like like you mentioned, like you alluded to. Uh, November in the desert is amazing, and it's a nice you know two hour drive from my house, which is perfect. <laughs> but um, you know, I 
I, I just, I'm not super optimistic that that's kind of what he wants to do. I also, a number of things that have to fall into place. Um, you know, I think, obviously, ESPN owns the TV rights, and any event would be made for TV. I just so much would depend on, you know, does the NFL start on time? Does college football right. start on time? If those events get pushed back, potentially it clears the way for, you know, for ESPN to have uh, room on their airwaves for tennis at that point. So, uh, there's, just, there's just so many moving parts. I agree uh, 100% with you with other events being moved back because I've had just general sports discussions with my own friends about college football and how colleges need that um, to obviously help fund their athletic department. And whether they're going to start in September or whether they're going to start even as late as second semester, we think it has to get done. But again, um, with with the TV rights and everything, other events have to be pushed back for this to even be a possibility. Um, so we will see. Uh, Mark, I, thanks. I know uh, this; these are trying times right now. Obviously, you're looking at the positive, and, and I'm looking at the positive, and um, that's what everybody should be doing. I want to kind of take you back. We were um, talking about it before we hit the record button. You know, two previous guests of mine, I take you back down memory lane a little bit. One was Natalie Mikulic, who is the current media director for Delray Beach Open. She also owns her, uh, she owns, she's, she's the CEO of her own PR agency, Element M. Natalie does a great, great job in everything she does, along with um, Prim Sripapat, who is the host of the Next Chapter podcast. It's part of the athletic platform. Prim's project interviews athletes, uh, former athletes, basically, on what their transition was like after the final whistle. And I love both what Natalie and Prim are doing. Have any thoughts on both of them? Oh, man, two of my favorite people in tennis. You know, Natalie, uh, I have these visions of nine-year-old Natalie, like, running around San Diego with her huge Prince graphite oversized racket and, you know, uh, ponytail bopping up and down and crushing backhands. Um, and it's cool now to see her. Um, being so good at what she does, and you know, she's worked in a lot of different areas of the game. And uh, I just saw her in Delray in February. Um, and, and Prim, um, seeing her sort of transition to what she's doing now, uh, I know that the psychology of sport, particularly like an athlete's transition away from it, um, has been something that's really interested her for a long time. And, and we've, we've had a lot of discussions about it. And now to see her project, you know, with the athletic uh, coming to you know, to reality is just it's so neat and every conversation she has with these athletes, like, it's so impactful and there's so much I pull from it. Um, so, you know, I'm really, uh, you know, obviously these are two women who have achieved so much professionally, but um, on a personal level, I'm just, I'm really happy for, you know, for these people being great friends of mine and I'm happy to call them friends. For sure. They, and, and again, I repeat, they're both doing amazing things in their respective uh, spots in the industry. So, with that being said, Mark, I want to thank you again. Um, best of luck when this all gets going again. You're doing such a great job. And thank you for being so open on your thoughts, whether it's on this podcast or other people's podcasts, along with posting um, you know, your training tips and everything. It's, uh, it's cool to see the inside, inside part of, uh, of a sport, and you do an amazing job with that. So thank you, Mark. Oh, man. Thank you for the kind words. Thanks for letting me talk tennis. I'd love to chat tennis with anyone who's interested. So uh, wishing all the same to you and hope you uh, stay healthy and safe over there in Chicago. Thanks, Mark. Talk soon. Yeah. Bye. Thanks. So there you have it. Mark Lucero, what a great guy. And, again, he's he's got so much experience at all levels of tennis and coaching. And um, 
you know, right now he's with Nicole and Stevie. And hopefully they'll uh, we'll get to see those players back on court relatively soon. So with that, stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening again. Courtside with Bielens and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, every everywhere you basically uh, listen to your podcast. Thanks everybody. <laughs>